0: From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Previously on Target USA...
1: And so one night around midnight, middle of the night, we're sitting in this tent and I I, I had these cyber professionals from eight different countries in there. And I asked them, I said, hey, who in this room has never had the Chinese in your networks uninvited? Everybody just kind of looked around. I was like, yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) Okay, who in this room has never had the Russians uninvited in your networks?
0: No hands. At the risk of sounding overly dramatic, they're everywhere. And one place the governments of Russia, China, Iran, and non-nation-state hacktivists want to be is inside voter registration databases in the U.S.
1: We could see adversaries interested in that information for what we would consider traditional intelligence and uh, espionage purposes. Shelby Pearson is the intelligence community's top election
0: security official, and she points out The 2020 election may not be the big prize for these actors.
1: So it's not just about the actual vote casting. It's acquiring valuable demographic data. So how are they going
0: after this data? And the all-important question, what are they going to do with it if they get it? That's coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA, Russia could render huge harm to this country, North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States, dangerous terrorist, DC is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack, cyber criminals, decryption successful, America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Thanks for joining us. It's no secret Russia, China, Iran, and non-nation-state hacktivists are actively attempting to interfere in the U.S. 2020 presidential election. But what's not well known is that may not be their ultimate goal. Exfiltration of voter profiles and data from registration databases is, according to the intelligence community's top election security official, a very likely objective. We talk about this and many more significant problems, concerns, and issues, and the outlook with Shelby Pearson. She's the election threats executive in the office of the Director of National Intelligence. Thank you so much for being here. The first thing I'd like to ask is if you could explain what it is that your title and your position are designed to do.
1: Sure. I think certainly, as many of your listeners know, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence was created several years ago to further integrate the intelligence across the community. And in fact, um, my position is an extension of that same goal, albeit focused around the challenges of election security, which includes both cyber threats to election-related infrastructure, as well as uh, threats uh, related to malign influence and influence operations here in the United States. So my position is really designed to, to galvanize the expertise, resources, and capabilities of the intelligence community to focus on this topic.
0: And how do you do that? Or what are the practical steps that you take?
1: I really appreciate that question because it's it's actually more about leadership style and how do you motivate people to um, focus on on work and goals that are potentially beyond that of their own organization for me um, one i've had the luxury of a peer group of executives across most of the agencies that i think i've worked with for a period of time certainly from 2016 to 2018 so i think there's a bit of an esprit de corps but i also think uh, we focus on articulating very clear goals for example how do we make sure that the intelligence community communicates with one voice and we then work towards practices and behaviors that accomplish those goals? So I think it's, it's really a matter of um, being transparent. So I think all of the agencies know exactly what our goals are and what we're trying to accomplish and really um, motivating all the agencies to understand what their role is relative to those goals.
0: And um, can you give me a basic idea of how many people are on your team and and how they're broken up just briefly i don't want you to get too far into the weeds because i know that could take you a long time to do that's right
1: um so generally speaking within the odni on my team specifically i think i have uh 10 which would include me and then i also have partners in the national intelligence manager for cyber the uh national uh counterintelligence and security center i know you've talked to my colleague billy venina before um and colleagues that work in uh, other areas of the cyber enterprise as well within ODNI so I would say on any given day inside of the ODNI I'm looking at a cohort of colleagues that are maybe 15 to 20 people um, that that help us accomplish ODNI's mission in this space and then I have colleagues across the community as I mentioned led by my peer group and at any given time um, we probably have I think a cohort of. a few hundred folks, and then, of course, those that work in the broader disciplines of counterintelligence, cyber, and regional expertise and operations all across the community that help us with this.
0: Let's get into some more specific and harder core questions. Um, You mentioned the 2020 election clearly is a part of why you and your team, your team exists. Um, What, and we're worried and have been for a while about some pretty pernicious and serious and insidious threats. Mm -hmm. So what are those threats?
1: I think um, as we have tried to um, continue to communicate these threats across the board, um, we are certainly looking at the traditional actors of uh, Russia, China, and Iran. um, Also non-state actors, hacktivists, uh, and frankly, uh, even domestic actors, which of course the FBI and DHS would lead on. Um, going into 2020. And so, as I mentioned earlier, I think those threats can focus on both uh, potential threats to the infrastructure uh, related to um, uh, casting votes or voter rolls or voter registration databases, as well as uh, malign influence or influence operations whose sponsorship is not known uh, to the target or the recipient.
0: Getting a little deeper into the threats election rolls, databases, et cetera. How are they presenting as threats? How are they going about trying to meddle or interfere or impact those those elements?
1: I think it's really important to be clear to your listeners that at this juncture, we do not have any intelligence information to um, suggest that adversaries have sought to compromise voting tallies or change voting numbers. I think that's a really important point to foot stomp. However, um, as... Uh, the cyber world is very broad uh, and deep. Um, We certainly see adversaries um, looking at a broad swath of infrastructure, which would include uh, that which is related to uh, election infrastructure. I think one um, area that we have focused on is voter registration databases. Um, And some of that is frankly uh, JJ, as you know, publicly available and or or available for sale. So I think we're working very closely with DHS and the states to understand what's already readily available um, openly, and then is are there aspects of information that we see that would suggest that they acquired that information clandestinely? For me, one thing that I want to point out um, to your listeners is that p- those cyber um, interest areas, particularly of voter registration databases may not be specifically to antagonize the outcome of the 2020 election. We could see adversaries interested in that information for what we would consider traditional intelligence and uh, uh, espionage purposes. But also, I think, to enable more focused and more effective targeting of influence campaigns. So it's not just about the actual vote casting, it's acquiring valuable demographic data about the American political landscape that then can enable the influence operations that I talked about previously.
0: And how do you see them leveraging that information if and once they get it?
1: I think that as I mentioned, I think it enables a level of accuracy and specificity and efficiency in how they look at specific populations in the United States Um, to influence through a broad broad swath, excuse me, of measures, which could include everything from social media to traditional influence. Mm
0: -hmm. Have you seen any um, evidence on social media of uh, them uh, sort of exercising um, activities, operations, I suppose, with information like this?
1: Certainly, I think we have uh, communicated very broadly uh, how the Russians continue to uh, continue to sponsor presence on uh, very popular social media platforms to promote um, narratives that they're interested in and to continue to sow discord in the United States. I also think it's important to point out that um, we as the United States try to learn from uh, a very broad swath of activity that might occur, for example, um, in Taiwan or might occur in Ukraine or the Balkans. And so looking at the influence campaigns relative to those regional conflicts, even the Middle East, for example, are also very important for us to learn from.
0: So we talked and you've touched on this uh, a bit uh, about where these threats are coming from. And you named Russia, China, Iran, and some other actors. Would would you say that all of these threats are, are, are coming from these places in equal measure, or or, or are some better? Um, I'm pretty sure the answer to that, you know, is gonna have something to do with Russia being really good at it, but the others are really good too, supposedly. But um, break down, um, you know, I guess the pecking order, if you would.
1: You know, we get that question a lot, JJ, and I think for me, um, it's less about rank order and more about sort of looking at them as a spectrum of capabilities and potential threats in the United States. So I think, for example, um, while the, the Russians might uh, have uh, volume on social media platforms, we can recognize, for example, that China um, might not want to be as brazen about uh, their presence on these platforms and sort of attributing it back to the Chinese government. And then at the same time, we look at the Iranians' who have had a history of election interference, um, particularly in uh, the Middle East region. And we try to look at the risk calculus of all three of those countries as to how does 2020 present itself as an opportunity for them to accomplish their national security objectives. And that's less of a rank order and more of a calculus married up with capabilities, access, intent, and their own risk tolerance uh, for getting caught.
0: We heard about Russia a long time ago uh, on this. Uh, Were you hearing about these other actors that long ago, or have they jumped on the bandwagon since then?
1: I think it's important to highlight that um, both cyber activity and intrusions as well as influence operations predate 2016 and have been the focus of the U.S. intelligence community for a long time. I think what has been... Uh, more of a focus area has been the opportunity that a particular election can have on the particular equities of a nation. And so while you might look at influence operations or cyber operations, frankly, as a uh, a 365-day endeavor, it is perhaps the rising profile and opportunity that a presidential or a midterm election presents to these countries that I think – Is part of the evolution of what we're interested in
0: in other words as well um, just for my own layman's understanding they've been there for a while they've been active for a while but they are seeing opportunities because of the election and because of the related elements that go along with election activity for them to achieve some more of their goals because of the time the timing with the election and the activities taking place so you're seeing perhaps more activity because of that
1: of course and when you couple that with the accessibility created by ever improving and involving technology where you can access the american voter very broadly you can reconstitute your efforts very quickly for relatively low cost um and frankly i think you know the political landscape is, is also one that i think is particularly attractive to some of our adversaries to really be thoughtful about do I want one path for the Americans or another and which one is more favorable to these countries and I think that's also a very important point
0: could you elaborate on that a little bit one path or the other
1: sure so I think um, you heard a bit about this type of judgment in our 2017 intelligence community assessment where you might see a nation favor one candidate one policy one party over another or um, might look at the prospect of one uh, uh, political platform as more in line with their interests or less in line with their interests. And so I think um, certainly, I think it's no surprise to your listeners that because there's in some very important ways, stark differences between potential trajectories for this nation based upon the political outcomes of both midterm and presidential elections, it would be natural that these countries would look at those trajectories differently and which ones are are more in line with objectives that they hope to achieve over the long term.
0: What is the intelligence community doing to deal with these threats? And you've spoken specifically a a bit about who they are and and what they, what they're doing, but um, how is the IC dealing with them?
1: So I think there's a couple of of things that I'd like to touch on. Um, One is, as I talked a few minutes ago about ensuring that we've actioned, information that we have uh, uh, in our uh, collection and results of our analysis and how are we as most appropriately broadly sharing that information so I think one thing I'd like to point out is that I think there's more mechanisms in place to ensure that we're sharing information particularly that which touches on influence operations more broadly with campaigns candidates and state and local election officials, certainly as the result of a policy signed by the president in October that we roughly call the notification framework, gave us, I think, a more consistent platform by which we evaluate information and share it with relevant parties. So I think that's one key step. A second issue, um, I think, is also, and I know you've covered this as well, is the strengthening um, appetite and capability for us to... Perturb these plans before they come to the United States. Um, U.S. Cyber Command had some very important successes in 2018, and we hope that those will continue um, uh, as we go forward. And, of course, that's informed by intelligence uh, collection and accesses. Um, And then I think we are further integrating with DHS and FBI both their intelligence capabilities and the information that they have access to to create, frankly, a whole of government picture on the threats as we see them. DHS colleagues who work in CISA, for example, work so closely with the states, they might have information that I don't necessarily have um, from intelligence collection. So I think, and similarly from the FBI, they're operating here stateside and have insights that aren't necessarily collected by the intelligence community. But putting all of that together, where I collect on information overseas and marry that up with information um, from what we see here domestically can be really powerful for the government.
0: Yeah, it is. Um, And so understanding that you can't go very far into how because of sources and methods concerns, but just for a little clarification on the disruption of threats, and I understand where that most likely would come from, uh, which agency Uh, And you clearly have a seat at that table informing what takes place. So the question I would ask, though, is, are your disruption efforts primarily focused on some direct action, tangible action? Or is the disruption focused as well on information to the public and and these actions and sharing that you're talking about?
1: You know, JJ, this is a really important question because I think... Um, Many times we are looking at one tool or another, and I think it's really important that the uh, American population understand that it's frankly a suite of tools that the intelligence community can affect. So you talked a bit about um, offensive cyber operations. Um, We talked a bit about defensive measures in terms of cyber hygiene. Uh, And again, the intelligence community can help inform those most... uh, um, appropriate and current defensive measures but also we create intelligence insights frankly to inform policy which could include um, sanctions obviously you've seen uh, an uptick in sanctions designations and the intelligence community I think is a really important component in terms of ferreting out what are the most relevant um, and important points of interest as to how these campaigns are funded and can we affect them this way and then to your last point. Um, I think you make a very uh, important observation that the sharing of threat information, um, particularly beyond state and local election officials and to the American public, is also, I think, part of this burgeoning um, and, I think, area of investment for the government in terms of building resilience and sharing with the American public on the landscape so that it's not a deterrent from participation, but really something that empowers them to participate in the democratic process. Mm-hmm. And I think that will be an area that needs additional attention over time.
0: So what do you say or how do you characterize? And we've talked a bunch of times today about the, the threats and the actors and what they're doing. But how do you how do you package up the scope, the full Sweet. you've talked about your suite of tools to deal with them. What kind of uh, scope of capabilities do these actors have? What does it range from?
1: I think it can range from everything from overt um, commentary and engagement with our politicians and our public to, uh, in in fact, for example, I think the Chinese took out a full page ad in the Des Moines Register in 2018 to, to talk more about and address the challenges of our trade policies. That's a very overt way in which a country can seek to influence the American population. So you might start with something totally overt, then move to more um, uh, obtuse areas of influence, um, then look to uh, social media platforms, and then go all the way to cyber intrusions into voter databases to complicate the day of voting, all the way to what we think is a, a less likely outcome, but certainly something that's on our radar, which is the potential altering of vote tallies. So to me, the spectrum goes from everything in terms of overt influence all the way to clandestine cyber intrusions into our infrastructure.
0: You know, you don't have any intelligence on this and you've you 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 you've made that point clear, but it is intriguing that we've heard about this and everyone thinks about this. We know that there are ways that it could possibly happen, but we don't know specifically, um, what the route would be. And so the thing I'd like to ask you in terms of this altering vote tallies, how would they do that? How, what's, how, how do they go about doing that? Because practices I'm sure in place, you know, to protect against it, redundancies, et cetera. But, um, how do they go how how would they go about doing that
1: i think this is a great question because it it is frankly very difficult to do this and part of it isn't necessarily um the result of of any specific capability on in the intelligence community but i really think frankly the um, broad and complicated enterprise across a whole spectrum of state and local jurisdictions that in aggregate create the outcome of an election and so if you're an adversary you have to be able to potentially affect several different milestones of auditability and counting that um, have been invested in including even um, technical sensors that DHS has sponsored on the network so you would really have to be able to affect a multitude of layers from the very point of casting ballots all the way up to a state certification process. And I think um, even from a practical perspective, your listeners can appreciate how difficult that would be, not only for an actor to affect that consistently in one domain, but do it in so many domains as to affect the outcome of an election. So it is a, a quite challenging problem. However, I think to your point about really what is um sort of the crux of that challenge. I think you can have challenges with provisional ballots um, in terms of, or absentee ballots, where you have um, access to the ballots uh, that could potentially be cast, and to the extent that those are somehow incorporated into the voting system. But as I said, we believe this to be a very, very tall order for an adversary to successfully uh, uh, sort of proverbially stuff the ballot box.
0: Have you seen any attempts to do this, not necessarily in a presidential election, but in any election from any adversary in recent times, because there are some fairly obscure reports out there about activities in Florida, activities in North Carolina that I've read about and have talked to other people about. Have you seen any connection?
1: I think uh, I'm familiar with the reports that you talk about. Um, we certainly have seen some adversaries try to do this overseas and have, because, again, the accessibility... You mean in other countries? In other countries, yes. But not here. Um, I think, again, we have seen activity on, on the part of actors. I think some of the activity we have is, remains unattributed. Um, in, and it, we can't necessarily ascribe... Um, intent to the activity that we've seen thus far. So, as I said, this issue is is complicated and difficult in terms of if we had an adversary access a particular point of the network, still making the jump to actually materially alter a vote count would be very difficult. But as an example, um, in Ukraine, and, and I think we've already reported on this, and it's been reported very publicly. You know, the Russians. Um, uh, defaced websites in, as it related to the articulation of voting counts. But that was a temporary disruption to say that one candidate won over another. The processes by which we audit and and the redundancies in those processes would could ferret out uh, that type of, of influence operation as it was occurring. So I think, again, we are very mindful of these reports. Um, FBI and DHS have been critical to working with the states on, on these types of intrusions. Um, but I don't think we're at the juncture yet where we have judged um, a specific campaign or an operation underway.
0: Okay, what can the public do about this? What's the public's role?
1: I think there are two things that come to mind, JJ, that are so important, and one I think will strike you as sort of uh, obvious. Voters need to participate, and I think that the American public needs to first and foremost prepare themselves to participate in the process, and that includes everything from Um, going to websites that are sponsored by their state and local election officials, including the secretaries of state, um, to find out exactly where they're supposed to vote, uh, if not already registered to vote, um, and also familiarize themselves with their rights uh, to participate and um, also have provisional ballots if their name isn't on the voter roll, which doesn't mean an adversary did something about it. There are obviously lots of logistics here. So I think first and foremost, Americans really need to just get ready to participate and and then um, uh, participate in the primaries, participate in um, the presidential election in November. The second aspect is, I think, raise their awareness and media literacy of consuming information um, from reputable sources that um, portray the political landscape with the greatest integrity possible. And I at least think raise their consciousness that some of the information that they might be consuming might be sponsored um, by a foreign actor that is not known to them and that those plans and intentions are real. Um, They can have an impact, but they are the best defense against this. So I think if they're focused on both the opportunity to cast a vote and then how they create... um, uh, and and acquire information that informs how they're going to vote, that's a really strong uh, platform for us in the U.S.
0: What are the, the main challenges for you, and what's your vision for dealing with everything?
1: Well, I think the main challenge for us is both. there's one short-term and one long-term. Short-term, I, I think we want to work on, as I said, uh, actioning the information we have, but we also want Americans to have confidence in their democratic institutions. And we recognize that the intelligence community is a very important, incredible voice um, in building that confidence across the United States. Long term, I think I want to continue to not only support this topic, but also better understand how this fits into, as I mentioned, the 365 Uh, uh, day cyber campaigns and influence operations and so really election security is but a moment in time of very broader programs and I think so from a programmatic standpoint and how we're gonna plan and continue our work is not just prepare for a milestone in 2020 but really incorporate ourselves into the natural muscle movement of the intelligence community
0: at the end of the day any given day how do you measure success for you and your group
1: I think certainly as we get closer to 2020, um, a very practical measure of success is have we actioned every piece of relevant information um, in the appropriate way? So action could mean everything. Did we produce a product on it? Did we produce, a let's say, a president's daily brief on it? Did we um, ensure that the FBI's counterintelligence unit received it so they could work within the FBI's authorities to action that information? Did I downgrade the information to share it with a state and local uh, election official because they need to know? So I think for me, a very practical measure of success centers on this issue of, did I action everything that I had resident in mm-hmm. our holdings? Mm-hmm. And I think, although that's a very practical measure, it's one that I think is is both tangible um, and I, I think ensures that the intelligence community isn't um, limited to simply analysis, but also expanding the impact of its work into those other constituencies I just mentioned. Mm
0: -hmm. Is there anything you'd like to add that I haven't asked you about that you think is important?
1: One, I really want to stress uh, my appreciation for um, media and colleagues like yourself in not only covering this topic, but also highlighting the role of the media and civil society in terms of informing the american public on uh, accurate information about elections accurate information about voting i think what's important to relay to your listeners is that this is not an intelligence community only um fight and not solely focused on the capabilities that i have resident in the intelligence community but really is based upon a partnership not only with the intelligence community and the rest of the federal government but the federal government and their state local election officials, the states as well as civil society and think tanks and academia and those organizations that I think are best connected to the public. And so really it needs to be a consortium and federation of capabilities and authorities um, that will prove to be the, the best promise for the intelligence community as well as the United States to defend against these threats
0: miss pearson it's been a true pleasure to talk to you and we thank you so much for that thank you so
1: much it's a pleasure to serve the american public
0: that was shelby pearson the election threats executive from the office of the director of national intelligence we'll be back to election security because seeing as how it's january and the election takes place in november there's lots more to talk about so we'll definitely be back to it coming up on our next episode I got a call on Friday, the 17th of January, from the um, uh, British uh, security services, their anti-terrorist group, that um, looks after my interests. That's Bill Browder, businessman and author. He cast himself as Vladimir Putin's number one enemy. And the call he got from British authorities was important. Telling me that they had received a call from their Swiss counterparts and the Swiss had informed them that they knew I was coming to Davos. They knew I was going to be speaking in Davos. Um, they were aware that the subject of my, of my speech was going to be a critical attack on Russian corruption. And they believed, based on their intelligence, that there was some uh, heightened um, risk to my physical security when I was going to be there. We call it the Plumber's Plot. The mysterious story of two Russians who were detained in Davos, Switzerland, in August, saying that they essentially were vacationing. But when authorities questioned them about being there and being plumbers, they produced diplomatic documents, and that led to a whole story about a plot to possibly bug the World Economic Forum, and in Browder's case, a possible attempt on his life. The full story and all the details, coming up in our next episode. That's it for this episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have questions or comments about our program, send me an email at jgreen@wtop.com. At That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. Jay Green at wtop.com subscribe to our podcast please and follow us on twitter at tusa podcast that's at tango uniform sierra alpha podcast at tusa podcast and you can follow our newsletter it's called inside the skiff each week the latest on national security and international security events you can sign up at wtop.com alerts. I'm JJ Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From A E, the creators of Cold Case Files, comes your next True Crime Podcast Obsession. PD stories. Every week, law enforcement professionals join host Tom Morris Jr. from America's Most Wanted and Live PD to share their experiences, insights and perspectives on policing. You're not going to want to miss this show. Be sure to subscribe on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts and many other podcast apps so you can get new episodes every week. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.